a special note for this podcast. This interview with Jason Trennett was conducted on the 21st of May earlier this year. Obviously, um, some of the comments were, are potentially some out of date, but given the sort of core themes and ideas that we discussed with uh, Jason, we felt that it was very important for us to continue with this podcast at this time. Hi there, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark. My name is Moz Afzal and I'm the Chief Investment Officer of VFG. This is an edited version of our internal podcast, more than just a typical market analysis podcast. In each episode, we go beyond the benchmark, delving into current topics affecting markets, economies and investors' psychology. Each episode, I'll be discussing global trends with guests and experts from within EFG and further afield. If you'd like to get in touch, please email me on beyond at fgam.com. Repeat that, beyond at fgam.com. Today, we have our guest, uh, Jason Trennett, who's the CEO and chairman of uh, Strategis. Uh, for those who don't know Jason, Jason uh, is a very frequent um, presenter on um, uh, CNBC and Bloomberg. You know, he's very well um, uh, is very well known in uh, U.S. financial circles. He's also very well connected um, as well with you know, the major hedge funds, major institutional investors, uh, as well as uh, some of the uh, electoral parties as well. I think he has some some him and and Dan Clifton who we've had on the podcast before are you know very well connected to the political establishment in the in the u.s so we very much look forward to um talking to jason um uh, about everything from strategic life and investments in the u.s stock markets so that should be you know, very much looking forward to that so with that um let's uh, dial in jason now i've known Jason uh, since uh, since the late 90s uh, so quite a quite 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 some time um, and a lot has changed in that time and so you know very uh, honored and uh, very happy for Jason to join us uh, Jason welcome well, well thank you uh, most thank you for having me it's a great pleasure as we were joking before the call we we've now we now find ourselves experienced yes exactly. uh, <laughs> yeah the years uh, stack up so yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, uh, so as this is as the podcast is called Beyond the Benchmark, I always like to kind of delve into um, the, the people who come on the podcast to delve into a little bit of their history, uh, experiences, because um, I, I think um, certainly uh, we have a lot to lot to learn, even uh, even us old timers. So, um, um, so you founded uh, Strategis in uh, 2006 and I, I think EFG in fact was one of your very first clients and uh, I remember that right. uh, you know very very vividly co- coming into that office uh, for the first time um, so uh, maybe you could tell us you know why did you set up Strategis obviously you had a very successful career at ISI um, uh, you know all the way since ISI founded um, uh, you know uh, why did you set up and you know tell us a little bit more about the, the culture at Strategis yeah, you know, listen, I, I, it's a very flattering question. Uh, I don't know. Most of the time, I just talk about markets, and, and um, you know, of course, everyone likes to talk about themselves. Uh, at least, uh, sell side analysts tend, tend to like to talk about themselves. So it's it's you're nice to ask the question. But <laughs> as you as you pointed out, you know, I started 
with Ed Hyman um, at ISI in 1991, and I, I worked there for about 15 years uh, before we started uh, Strategus in 2006. And I, I have to say very candidly that the, the impetus um, is, um, and I have a still very good relationship with Ed Hyman, uh, so he knows this, but speaking out of school, but the real impetus was that uh, there was no equity uh, in the uh, in the firm to be had, that all of the equity really rested with two partners. And, you know, at a certain point after you've, you know, put 15 years in and you, you know, you're traveling 70, 80 days a year, you know, you start to, you start to think about, you know, what you're building and, uh, and all the rest of it. So that was, that was really the impetus is that I wanted, you know, I wanted to own uh, part of what uh, we were creating. And I was fortunate I was joined by Nick Bonesack and Don Rissmiller uh, Eileen Gabay, Katerina uh, Lundberg, uh, and so the five of us started this adventure in, in 2006, and it's you know mercifully it's uh, it's evolved and, and gotten larger. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. So, in terms of the, the you know the cultural values of Strategis, you know maybe talk a little bit about you know you know what drives um, you know you and your colleagues. Uh, and obviously, we know Nick and Don for a long time, and they've been. They're very, you know, very good, very, very loyal um, uh, colleagues. Um, talk about the culture. Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the, and so, you know, in addition to that, you know, kind of that band, the original band, we, we included, uh, we now have Chris Verone and Dan Clifton. Chris is our technical uh, analyst and Dan runs our, our Washington policy uh, shop. And, you know, there's, there's two things I think that one is that all, all of us really love the markets and um, really find it intellectually very stimulating. So in, in many ways, it's kind of, um, I don't want to overstate it, but it's a little bit of a calling. I mean, it's something that I, I don't think any of us could really imagine doing any other, uh, being in any other business. Um, and we enjoy, we very much enjoy talking about the markets and, and the economy so that that's a big part of the culture. The, the other part of you know the culture is that um, which you know I learned from Ed Hyman and, and and also just through the you know through time is there's a, a very strong focus on humility on on the way we do our forecasts, the way we think about the markets, and, and that's you know partly again uh, Moses that's, that's driven by experience because I I've often found that um, and we're not I'm certainly not. Um, you know, the smartest person, uh, but I, I generally find the smartest people make tend to make the biggest mistakes <laughs> in the, in the financial markets. And that's, that's generally because they're, they're so smart that they, um, they convince themselves that they're smarter than the collective wisdom of the markets. And so you have things like long-term capital or other, other instances where, you know, generally speaking, the smartest people, um, wind up coming close to torching the financial system every 10 years, right? So we, we are very, um, I think we, we try very hard to listen to our clients and, and watch what the markets are telling us and are not afraid to change our minds and admit that when we're wrong, that we admit it quickly and kind of move back to the consensus and kind of regroup and, and then, you know, try another path. So I think those are two big things. We love it. And, and we also, but we also have a lot of respect uh, for uh, the power of the markets and, and a, a good sense of our, our own, uh, our own limitations uh, in terms of 
the social science of, of economics and, and markets. Well, it was well, well said. I think uh, markets have a habit of uh, proving everybody wrong at some point. Um, it, it is it is one of those one of those things, and it, it definitely is an art rather than the science. Uh, so, um, obviously, recently you um, you you partnered up with uh, Baird. What was the rationale and the thinking to that? Yeah, so we, we in, at the end of 2007, we closed on, on uh, January 1st, 2018. And, you know, the rationale uh, was, you know, in some ways just kind of becomes full circle. But we, we uh, in order to grow, we have about 55 people and the capital was always our own. Uh, and, uh, and, and at a certain point, I realized actually during the deal with Baird, that I was personally responsible for the 12,000 square feet of office space in, in New York. Uh, you know, so there, there's some certain, my partners didn't remind me of that. I think I, we did that early <laughs> on, but, um, you know, there, there were certain features like that, which, which probably were, were from a risk point of view, weren't probably the, the smartest thing. And, and also we were limited in terms of how much we could grow. And, and Baird offered us an opportunity. I knew the, the, um, the CEO, uh, Paul Purcell, very well. Sadly, he recently passed away, but he's a great, great financial services CEO. We had known each other a long time, and, and the beautiful thing about it was that there was no overlap in terms of what we did and what they had, which is to say, you know, they, they have a big uh, private wealth management um, network of financial advisors, but don't, didn't have any macro research at all or, or very little. And so um, we could kind of pair together. We could still focus on our institutional clients almost exclusively, uh, but we also, the content that we're providing could could help out uh, Baird's financial network. So it's been a good partnership. You know, we, we still operate independently um, uh, from them, but culturally they're also, I think, quite aligned with, you know, kind of our values as far as humility is concerned. And, um, and all the rest. So it's it's been it's been great. Mm, that's great. So let's talk a little bit. About you've um, written a couple of books. Uh, I have one signed copy. Actually, I'm waiting for the other one, uh, uh, Robert. If you're listening, that will be uh, much obliged. Uh, so um, new markets, new strategies, and um, my side of the street. So so those are the two books um, that, uh, that you put together, and and then obviously another. Um, a very important piece of work that you did for the Wall Street Journal, um, uh, introducing the concept of Tina, which is uh, there is no alternative. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in, in in a few moments. So, how the markets um, you know changed over the last um, you know thirty years or so um, in terms of you know, market structure, investors, you know, and and some of the things that uh, are, are better now, and some things are a lot worse now. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, the, the biggest one of the things that uh, we think a lot about in terms of just in terms of our everyday investment um, strategy is uh, this idea of sociology of ownership, which is to say, you know, who are the in any given time, we're largely of the view that there's a dominant investor uh, that, that tends to run the table and you have to know what they're doing. Uh, and so in the, for, for instance, in the 60s, as far as the equity markets in the United States, it was largely trust companies at banks that, that largely 
held on to stocks for a very long period of time. Average holding period was about eight years in the 60s, uh, believe it or not. And then you had this this kind of explosion of the mutual fund industry, which had been around a long time, but they really became the dominant players uh, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and so by the time I started, it was obviously the fidelities and the T-Row prices and the capitals and all, all the rest of it that, that really were the big players. Hedge funds were quite, were quite small players. Um, and, you know, running a billion or $2 billion was kind of like out of sight. Uh, and it, it really wasn't an institutional, um, they, they were very important players in terms of paying commissions, but it wasn't really an institutional asset class hedge funds at that time. They were, they were in, in the U.S. at least, they were limited to 99 investors. And it wasn't pensions and endowments that were looking to get a certain bogey of, you know, LIBOR plus 300 or plus 400. The, the people were looking to really take a small portion of their assets and really try to shoot the lights out um, and, you know, be up 40 or up 50 or, to, you know, double the, the, the pace of the S&P 500. And that was very much the culture as the hedge fund industry evolved and it became more institutional and you had more and more um, pension funds and endowments and foundations, uh, obviously the, the focus changed uh, quite a bit more. So it, it, was, it became a little bit more about capital preservation or at least limiting the downside or sharp ratio, you know, those sort, sorts of things, which were, were not a feature of hedge funds, I can tell you. Uh, when I started, you know, no one, I don't think anyone even knew what a sharp ratio was <laughs> or they wouldn't care, you yeah. know? Um, and then I would say over the last 10 years, and we don't deal with many, but I, I think, you know, a very big player has been uh, private equity. And so private equity is, and there's been some convergence between private equity and public equity. Um, I, I think the current pandemic in many ways, though, the current crisis, um, I, I think highlights the importance of liquidity so I, I think there's a sense in which uh, my own opinion is private equity got, you know, is more of the bubble represents more of an equity bubble than, than the public equity markets. But, uh, but that those are kind of the, the that's kind of how I've seen it evolve. Uh, and then the holding periods clearly, as I, I said in the '60s, they were eight years in the '60s, and and now actually it, it's it's up from the low, uh, 2008 2009, but it's still maybe about a, a little more than a year. Uh, which is interesting for you know, long duration assets like common stocks. Yeah, I think that's a, that's quite an interesting you know point um, that investor patience is obviously you know no longer there. Um, and I think what an interesting one interesting observation I have is around Amazon, where you know have Jeff Bezos you know even in his recent um, uh, you know shareholder letter. Basically said, you know, was it? I think he said, "Fasten your seatbelts. You might want to sit down here." Um, in terms of what they're up to, but but what's interesting is that, you know, he uh, he's been able to um, uh, to push people's time horizon into a very very long term time horizon in terms of, uh, you know, um, investment, um, and it's one of those studies I've always wanted to sort of, um, you know, look at is you know the average. Uh, time horizon of an Amazon shareholder versus, right. you know, the, uh, I guess, management in, in this case, you know, Jeff Bezos, you know, for a very long time. Um, and, but if you held the stock for that period, you obviously would have done very, very well. 
Um, and uh, so often, you know, that mismatch in terms of that time horizon, in terms of what a company's time horizon may well be, uh, and the CEO's and, and, and say major shareholders' time horizon, versus the very t- short-term time horizon, as you explained, um, uh, you know, just now. Do you have any sort of perspectives on that? Do you, do you think people are just missing the returns because they, 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 um, they only have that uh, short uh, uh, time frame? Uh, Mose, I think so. I, I really, I, I think, and this is, it's a, it, as, as you know, you know, we're in a competitive business. You're in a very competitive business. And that, that's one of the things that makes it, in some ways, it, it works at odds with what you're trying to do, which is to maximize long-term returns. Of course, the hard part is that if you underperform for too long, you don't have any clients. Uh, you know, it might work out over a long period of time, but you, yeah, you, yeah. you might not have a lot of clients joining you on that, uh, that venture. Yeah. And that's, that's a constant, I would say that's a constant struggle that everyone has in the business, whether they're long only or long short. Um, in some ways it's worse for long short. You have to report monthly performance and yeah. all the rest yeah. of it. I mean, yeah. And um, which again, it is, it's kind of at odds with what, what you're doing. You're, you're talking about, short of real estate common stocks are the longest duration assets uh you can have and so i've always thought that you know, if you could arbitrage time horizons um which i think in many ways is what buffett has been able to do it, it you you can it makes it a lot um i would say it's easy uh, but it, it's easier and i think one of the ironies about a guy like buffett is that you know he never would have made it um, if he were, let's say he were the head of the Magellan Fund, uh, Fidelity, I mean, no one would probably have ever heard of him. I mean, or, you know, he certainly wouldn't be the icon uh, that he is now because he would have wind up getting fired, you know, a half a dozen times throughout his career because there were periods of time where he just, as we say in the U.S., American football, you know, stood in the pocket and took the hit and, uh, for a couple of years, but was proven right uh, in the end. And that's the, you know, that of course is the, that's, that's the trick that we all have. And so it's, you know, getting clients to understand that is, is, is not always so, so easy. Yeah. I guess the other case we have at the moment, and we had uh, one of the um, um, uh, tech, one of our top tech technology analysts uh, a few weeks ago, talking about SoftBank and uh, the SoftBank kind of has this problem, right? Because it is a private equity, but in, in, in the public markets um, right. and uh, you know, the amount of stick that they get and you know, the discount to NAV is just substantial, you know, 70% or so uh, right. a, a, as a result of the fact that they, they, they are, you know, I guess private equity in, in the public, in, in the public eye. Um, right. Uh, it is quite a fascinating um, situation that um, that they're in, and you know, in some respects, I, I guess it probably would have been a bit like Buffett would have been in the nineties, right? You, you know, you know, I probably remember very well. But you know, performance of you know Berkshire Hathaway wasn't that great in in, in the in the mid to late nineties because Terrible. you know yeah. he, he he didn't buy on the uh, on, on the tech names. Yeah, well, I mean, he, I, this, the story that, um, again, to use another American sports metaphor, but, you know, this story that Warren Buffett has lost his fastball. I mean, I, I've, I've read that story about five times in my career. 
you know, that, and, and that was very true in the late nineties where people said, you know, he's just missing it. He's yeah. not, you know, he's, he's just not understanding that this is a new paradigm and, and so on. Of course he was proven right. Uh, but there were a lot of calls, you know, for that. And I, I think, um, you know, again, private equity is, it, there's an interesting convergence because there's obviously a lot fewer public companies. It's one of the things I didn't mention in the, in the kind of, in my exposition of, you know, my career is that there's a lot fewer public companies today uh, in the U.S. at least than there, there were 20 years ago. There were close to 9,000, I'm using round numbers, close to 9,000 publicly traded companies in 1997. There's about 5,000 now. And so if you're a small cap manager, that's a problem, yeah. right? Because there's a lot of companies that, you know, and you've seen certain mutual funds start to actually add private investments to their mutual fund uh, holdings, which again can be, you know, um, as we know, that can be very, <laughs> be very dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Plenty of examples of people that have, yeah, um, have, you know, have, saw the wrong side of that. Yeah, so, we, we, um, we have a famous one called Woodford in the UK that does us all the wrong side of that as well. Yeah, the FT, that's kind of one of the FT's favorite stories, I, yeah. I think. <laughs> right. I write about that pretty frequently. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, I, I think associated with the number of stocks, you know, the 9,000 to, to, to 5,000, and obviously, you know, companies can get very, very big in, in private in private land, you know, if you look at sort of Uber or, um, uh, you, you, know, um, you know, those types of companies that have, have come publicly, you know, I'll say uh, Facebook and, and Google, probably the other ones that were very big companies by the time they actually came uh, to the um, uh, to the public market and they completely skip out the the, the small and even mid cap um, uh, uh, you know, piece. Um, what about the number of um, analysts covering companies? Because I think one thing that, you know, I find quite fascinating is the number of analysts covering stocks um, uh, today compared to, um, you know, the, the late 90s. I'm guessing they must be down by about 50 or 60 percent. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, a big, there are a variety of reasons for that. I mean, part, part of it is just that there's fewer stocks um, and, and part of it also more recently, but clearly um, a very big impetus for that is, is simply is MIFID, right? And, uh, and separating out um, trading from, from research. And I have to say, you know, being very candid, if you were going to, it's not a perfect, I, I never thought it was a perfect system uh, necessary to pay for research uh, with commissions, but in comparison to the other, I, I would say the other alternatives, it's not bad. Uh, and, and actually, I think many of the, many of the, the impetus for many of the things we're trying to accomplish by doing that frankly, had been solved a long time ago. And, and I will say, when I started the business in the early 90s, I mean, there were people that were using commissions to pay for, you know, lunch for the office and, and, and you know, operating expenses of the company. So there were real abuses there. But using it to directly pay for research, it seems to me, is, is it's, it's, it's a pretty elegant, it's not perfect, but it's a pretty elegant way. And I think it is, is also very consistent, uh, you know, with the fiduciary duty uh, that, that, uh, fund managers have, but this is one of the unintended consequences. I think of, of MIFID in many ways, which is, I, I do think it, it retards the capital formation process. Uh, and it, it makes, uh, investments a little bit more, uh, opaque 
right? So, you know, so you, you have companies staying private a lot longer. And so you have a lot of individual investors, you, the other side of the coin. And so you're trying to do this to protect individual investors by the same token, you're not allowing individual investors to actually uh, enjoy the fruits of uh, a company that grows so dramatically. And um, so it's, um, it's, there's an irony, I think, uh, in that. So that, you know, the, again, the, the, the whole business is changing. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure it'll ever kind of go back to the way uh, it was, but I'd also say that the good thing about having less analysts cover the companies is it, it creates some inefficiencies uh, that allow people like you, you know, to, to do your own work and, 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 um, and get your own outperformance as a result. Oh, absolutely. I, unfortunately, we need a bit of a market correction to achieve that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, right. you know, it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, certainly EFG, we've, we, we've been, uh, you know, fairly well positioned. And, you know, I think the environment, this environment uh, has really shown the true value of, of, uh, of active management. Uh, so long may it continue. That's, that's, that's all I can say, but you're yeah, right. I, I think it, you know, for whatever it's worth. I mean, I, I really think it, it, of course, all my clients are active managers. So, you know, kind of what else would I say, but I really <laughs> do believe in many ways, this, this, the current crisis that we're going through now is going to benefit active managers and it's it's actually been it's been a tough period i think since the last financial crisis for active managers yeah. partly because quantitative easing you know wore away the the some of the dispersion between winners and losers and you created a lot of zombie companies and all the rest of it now i think even though rates are low and you have a lot of quantitative easing access to capital is going to be harder it's going to be more rationed and, and it, it creates a, i think a better dynamic for for stock picking and security selection, you know, than you've had in a while. Yeah, well, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, the 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 concept of zombie companies, you know, certainly since the last financial crisis, is is a real one. You know, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't know how many times Macy's has come out of bankruptcy and come back in again. You know, at least twice, yeah. I think, in the last decade. So, yeah, you, you know, Sears. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say Sears is the other one, but yeah, I mean some of these ones probably should have been gone the first time. And, you know, uh, you've got to wonder whether, um, you know, now that capital is, is, um, uh, is scarce, that that will only go to a fewer group of companies. Um, but, it, but it does lead, maybe we can drift on now to the current environment. It does lead to the situation where, you know, the biggest companies are just going to clean up. And uh, obviously we have a lot of concentration uh, in the S&P 500, last time I looked, um, you know, the technology sector, you know, healthcare, staples, um, uh, and even consumer services that have, you know, Facebook and, and, and Google make up, I don't know, 65, maybe yeah. a bit more than that of, right. of, of, of market cap. Um, and, you know, those, those, those companies have, I guess, zero earnings growth this year, maybe even positive. For this year, but will probably rebound harder next year as they take market share. Well, what are your thoughts in terms of kind of the polarization yeah. of the market at the moment? Yeah, that's what I think. That's what makes this particularly difficult, and is, and is a source of a lot of discussion in our own shop. We have a morning meeting every day at seven thirty, and and we discuss these things. And I, I would say this is the this is one of the questions we're getting most from our clients, which 
let's say from a U.S. perspective, you say, you know, how is it possible that there's 30 million people that are unemployed in the United States now? Um, continuing claims this morning were by, uh, 25 million or something. Um, you know, and and the Nasdaq be up on a year, you know, year to date. You know, does that makes after a terrific year last year? And and I think it's what you're you know what you're discussing is that you know if you if you've built companies that are robust to a shock like the one we've got now. Sorry, I have a little landscaping going on in the background here. Um, <laughs> But um, if you can build companies that could do that, um, you know, what are they worth? And, and the thing is, they're, they're worth a lot, uh, clearly. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think one of the things that worries me is that I have a feeling, though, you know, there will be a certain point at which they'll be too expensive. Uh, but I'm not sure it's, it's yet. I'm not sure it's, it's right now uh, especially because i i do think growth is going to be somewhat scarce uh, i do think the recovery the economic recovery is going to take some time and companies that can actually provide some real earnings growth uh, are going to be uh, very attractive uh, for a lot of people and even even a lot of people that were formerly or you know much more value oriented are going to understand that it may take a long time for value to really start to um, uh, to outperform until you you're in a sense and w- at a point at which you can really get uh, a robust cyclical recovery. Yeah. So um, let's talk about some of the tail risks. So obviously we have um, uh, the positive tail risk is you know we we get a vaccine and you know the people who really need it uh, get vaccinated by by I don't know Q three Q late Q three uh, Q four. Uh, so that's uh, that's one tail risk on on the right. on, on the positive side, and I think, you know, there is this big value flip whenever we see, you know, positive news coming out of Moderna or you know Oxford or whoever it might be, um, uh, you know, to the market, and uh, uh, we see do see those those big sort of short term bursts. You know, I call that I you know call that the positive tail risk, um, um, and then we have the obvious negative tail risks. Um, which are you know around a second outbreak, you know further unemployment, um, uh, you know U.S. and China, you know trade wars or or reignition of that. Um, uh, are there any sort of terrorists you think that uh, you know the market is not not uh, contemplating at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that one of the terrorists that worries me, I, I would say, is more political, and and of course this is you know we we have as you know. A, an office in Washington D.C. We've we've we spend a lot of time talking about the the shadow that policy casts over the financial markets, and it's only grown. Um, you know, it's a little bit talking our own book, but I have to say, just objectively speaking, uh, that that influence over the financial markets, the economy has only grown since the last financial crisis, and and of course now it, it's gotten even bigger. Um, but to me, this is, you know, there is a political risk, I, I think, to the extent to which you do have an unemployment rate in the U.S., let's say right now is about 15 percent, um, a little less than 15 percent, and the Nasdaq's up 3 percent uh, or what have you. And, you know, I think that there, there are obviously real concerns in hand-wringing about income inequality and and. The rest, and I, I think that that's something that will persist, and that's that's one of the downsides of of quantitative easing, in my opinion, 
is that generally speaking, it tends to or it tends to benefit people that are already pretty wealthy and have financial assets more than it benefits, let's say, the average person that might just have a savings account. And so, and I'm not I'm not criticizing the Fed for doing what it's doing now. I think what they're doing is is appropriate, but it they're going to have their work cut out for them to make sure that this isn't seen as, as some sort of bailout for rich people when everyone else is kind of just still struggling. And that, and also, obviously, we've seen a lot of political movements, uh, obviously, in the UK and the United States, I would say also in continental uh, Europe, um, that are reflecting some of those tensions. And, and to me, that's one thing to keep an eye out for. We have, uh, this may be too parochial, but you know, we have our own election in November, and uh, I don't want to offend anyone's politics, but I, I think, uh, you know, as, as much as Donald Trump drives people crazy, I, I have a pretty strong feeling that he would be much better for, this, for the market, or just a parochial view of the market, than, than Joe Biden. And the reason why I think that is that there would be a, a very strong tendency, um, if Joe Biden were to win, to, to try to use social engineering as part of the recovery plan you know, use, really focus on social justice and these other things. And that just my, our own experience here in the U.S. in the 30s, that can get very dangerous from a market perspective because capital tends to go on strike when that happens. If you're changing the rules so frequently, um, you, you're kind of working at cross purposes with what you're trying to achieve. And, and to me, that's a risk. You know, we five months in, in U.S. politics, any place is an eternity. So, I'm not particularly worried about it now, but it's something I think obviously is going to be an important, it will be an important development uh, for for the markets and the economy later in the year. Yeah, no, I, I, I tend to agree with that. I think at the beginning of this year, we were uh, a little bit more cautious. In fact, we downgraded U.S. equities for the first time uh, huh. in, in January for the first time gosh, I can't remember, probably since 2007 or eight or something like that. I think it was a very right. long time we've been overweight uh, U.S. equities. Uh, and we downgraded um, uh, to, to neutral really in preparation for what we felt was going to be a, a quite a tricky um, uh, you know, election for, uh, you know, uh, for, for those big large cap names. In, in fact, we had a bit of a preference of a small cap. Um, and then, you know, during March, um, when the um, full extent of the virus was, was starting to, to get discovered, it, uh, in fact, yeah, it would have been early March, you know, it was a no-brainer to go overweight U.S. equities once that correction had, 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 had come through because, you know, those U.S. companies, the makeup of the index, just make it, you know, very interesting. And, um, right. and you really didn't want to own much else may other than, you know, the other overweight we have is in, in China and, and in Asia, given that they, their economic cycle was maybe slightly different as well as being ahead of everyone else in terms of fighting, um, the COVID-19. Um, so I think that was, that was quite, quite, um, uh, you know, the, the shift that we certainly made in that time. And, you know, so far so good. Uh, yeah, probably one of the better calls we've made over the last. Good, few years. Yeah, um, good for you. I, yeah, I, you know, we were. I would say at the start of this year, we were, you know, quite actually. We we for the first time in a while, we had actually overweighted Europe, but it was a little bit uh, really driven by the idea that with the trade war at least between the U.S. and China largely dormant, 
there was a, a chance, at least from a tactical perspective, for Europe, uh, Europe's valuations to catch up, for Europe, Europe's economy to, to strengthen in, in 2020, at a period in which there'd be a lot of political um, yeah. problems here in the U.S. for a lot of problems, a lot of political yeah, decisions. But like, yeah. like you, by mid-March, we were, you know, very much more on the yeah. view uh, overweighting the U.S. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I guess that that, that brings us very nicely on to Tina, which, um, which is one of the phrases you coined in 2013 and obviously got a lot of, um, a lot of uh, press around. Uh, do, do you want to, I won't spoil your thunder, but do you want to tell us about Tina? Yeah, well, the, um, you know, I, I would say I didn't coin, I didn't coin the phrase uh, originally, it was actually came from the UK, and it was something that was. I think it was a nickname of Margaret Thatcher, if I'm not mistaken, because right. she would <laughs> she would simply say uh, to the Labour Party, "There is no alternative." You know, every time she would come up with something like privatizing British Steel or British <laughs> Airways or something, uh, she would simply say, "There is no alternative." And she said it so often, she got nicknamed that. We we were the first to to kind of take it as a market idea um, and say, listen, in a world of financial repression, in a world in which which uh, central banks are purposely pushing interest rates lower, keeping interest rates uh, lower than they might be, most fiduciaries or a good portion of fiduciaries, pensions, endowments, foundations, really have no other alternative aside from equities. That, and it's not a particularly, you know, it doesn't seem like a particularly insightful call. It wasn't that, you know, not, not that unique then, but it, it was, I, I think, you know, it's turned out that way because we have a lot of clients, for instance, that, that have investment return assumptions, big state pension plans in the United States that have investment return assumptions that at the time were well over 8%. Uh, and still today you can find state pension plans that have, investment returns uh, assumptions that high they've started to come down but the, the average uh, um, expectation is about seven and a half and of course that's pretty hard to do when tenure treasury yields are are u.s tenure treasury yields are three percent much less you know 70 basis points and so you're in many ways you're still left with the same problem uh which a lot of these foundations that have to distribute, let's say, 5% of their income a year, um, you, you've got to look for someplace other than the fixed income part of your portfolio to, to get it. And, you know, maybe you'll get lucky with uh, with capital gains in that part of the portfolio, but certainly it's, it's a tough thing to bet on when rates are so low. So in many ways, this is, you're, you're, this is a repeat uh, of, you know, of, of that. And, you know, what you do hope, I, I think, is that um, it's not per the Fed's or the central bank's meddling in the market is not permanent, uh, that at a certain point they exit. But it seems very appropriate now. And, and it seems it's hard to foresee interest rates moving, long-term interest rates moving up a lot uh, anytime soon. Um, and we'll see. But you, you've had enormous auctions in the United States uh, of, of fixed income securities, treasury securities, and in some of them, you already in two weeks you have capital gains. You know, it's kind of kind of incredible. So, so Tina on steroids. <laughs> Tina on steroids. Yeah, I mean, I, and I know it drives some people absolutely crazy. Uh, I would say if you have value orientation, uh, or you know, I, I think 
you know, I understand, you know, clearly where people are coming from to, to say like, you know, it, it shouldn't, or shouldn't be this easy. You know, I have a CFA or I have an MBA or something, but, but, you know, ultimately I, I do think there's an element of, you know, trying to figure out how, um, you know, how people stay employed and what they have to do for a living that, that is important to consider. Uh, we should say there's not a normative judgment that these people are making. They're just, they're literally, it's really just a math problem where they're saying like, listen, and that's been part of the, I, I would say that's been part of the, the, the impetus for the interest in private equity, because you're essentially getting levered equity returns. Uh, and, and we could debate whether, you know, I, we could debate whether they're, it's worth what you're paying for them, but that's been a big part of the appeal of private equity is that you, you get levered equity returns. And, and that makes a lot of sense when, when there's a lot of liquidity, it, it makes probably a little less sense when liquidity is, is more scarce. Mm, no, absolutely. So, um, moving on to kind of near term, um, kind of markets, the big question I'm, I'm sure question you get from, uh, from your clients is, you know, when is it time to buy the cyclicals? What, what do you need to see for you to get confident about buying some, you know, some of the cyclicals? You know, we know that smaller part of the index, you know, uh, you know, uh, I, I guess materials and, and energies is less than 5% of the S&P 500 these right. days. You know, when yeah. is the time, you know, what are the catalysts are you looking for to buy those, to buy those sectors? Well, well, I would say, I, oh, apart from like a catalyst, I, I would just say a, a signal, uh, I would argue that I'd like to see to, to get more confident would be a backup in, in long-term interest rates in the States. Uh, which is say that's that's been one of the things that about um, the rally off the March twenty third low, I think one of the things that that doesn't quite fit um, is that you still have two year treasuries I think at fifteen basis points and ten year treasury yields at sixty five basis points despite enormous amounts of issuance. That is is some signal I would argue the markets aren't telling you. A, a single story. I always feel better when the markets are pretty consistent with one another. And I would, I would say persistently low interest rates are, are probably something that's missing. So that's, it's not a, a catalyst, but it's a, it's a signal that I would, I would like to see. Um, in terms of the, you know, a, a catalyst, it, it would, uh, it would, <laughs> unfortunately, I think that, that uh, a single catalyst would be, unfortunately, it's really just time and, and allowing the market to clear. And I think one of the things that would, would start to give me some confidence on the cyclical rebound is that you actually started taking some capacity out of some of these businesses, which will happen. I think, you know, I'm not sure when, but uh, I would argue that, you know, there's probably been overinvestment, let's say in the U.S. energy markets, for instance, and, and that will eventually be cleared out. You know, once the dust, dust settles, the, the stronger companies will absorb the weaker ones and, and that will, um, it will be somewhat painful during that period of time uh, for the industry. But, but that's what will set up the, the, I would say the basis for the next leg higher. Um, and that's true also in, in places like retail, I would say is another sector where there, there's obviously too much capacity and, and that's going to have to be rationalized, I think, before you can really, really rely on those sectors to, to take you out. But I, I have no doubt that will happen. Uh, it, it's just, it, it may take a little bit of time. I think one of the 
most one of the things that is hard now is that while it seems like this has been going on a long time because we've all been home and, you know, it's, it's really only eight or in the U S at least, uh, it's only about eight or nine weeks old. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this the pandemic. I mean, you know, March 12th uh, was the day that the NBA, I use the NBA closing as my kind of marker for when the economy closed down. And that was March 12th. So, you know, again, nine weeks. So it, it's going to, uh, people are expecting things to turn around right away. I, I think it's just, there, there's just an element of time where uh, sooner or later, the stronger companies are going to subsume the weak. And, and to me, that would be a very, a very good sign. Mm. Uh, and even though the economy might, weaken further might be more layoffs people start to say well all right we're going to rationalize these businesses they're going to make a lot more sense in the future yeah no i i it certainly certainly makes a lot of sense now um the 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 feature of the current market environment has been you know uh, speculative you know uh, futures flows are, are very negative you know people in the futures market uh, have been um, as negatively positioned as they have been, you know, for the last five, five or ten years, in fact. Um, and you know, generally, we've seen some very high-profile hedge fund managers. You know, recently, you know, Drucker Miller and a few others have have really talked the market down. Um, uh, what is the investor positioning like? And you know, one of the things that's you know kept us, uh, you know. Um, a little bit more confident, uh, certainly about the U.S. stocks at least, has been that everyone is so bearish, um, and there's you know, a huge amount of cash on the sidelines, um, and um, you know I don't get the sense we we're seeing FOMO just yet. <laughs> but what is your, you know, yeah, um, I, you know, what, listen, what, I, what is your sense here? Yeah, no, it's, I mean I think it's a great point. It, it's very consistent also with you know we do surveys of our clients and and two questions that we ask are uh, one is do you believe the next 10 percent in the market is higher or lower and the last two that we did one was last week and one was three weeks before that in each of those last two surveys 80 percent of the institutional investors we surveyed thought that the next 10 percent would be lower so um which is you know obviously um is why it hasn't worked out that way, why, yeah. why the market's continued to go higher. Now, I will say the majority of our clients also think we're going to hit new highs in 2021. Right. And so, you know, if you want to kind of take the other side from a longer term perspective, you say, well, maybe people are a little too optimistic, maybe about how quickly we get back to the new highs. But I think, I, I think you're right. I, I think that um, the, the positioning certainly uh, among the more, speculative crowd the fast money crowd has been quite negative and i think there's always a tendency of course you know all of us just given how bad the news is there's a tendency to want to try to fight fed um but it's i think as if you saw chairman powell on a new show we have in the u.s called 60 minutes um you know he was quite (laughs) he was he was quite clear that uh from his perspective, there, there, he is unlimited ammunition and, and is not afraid to use it uh, to stabilize the economy. And so that's, that's one of the things that I think is, is, is confounding a lot of the bears, mm. right, is that um, there, there's, there's really no hesitancy on the part of the Fed to, to use all the powers at its disposal 
to keep the at least keep the financial market stable and keep financial conditions stable enough so that other policies, fiscal policies in particular, regulatory policies can can help soften the blow on the overall economy. Great. Okay, I think we will we'll, uh, certainly have a look at how how that pans out. It's going to be it's quite a fascinating time at the moment um, uh, from a, from a, from a both from an investor's point of view and and also from a, uh, for, for you know, people like yourself who are reading the markets every day. I think this is uh, quite fascinating and it's quite quite um, delicately poised <laughs> in terms of what happens next um, in terms of uh, you know. Uh, uh, either policy responses, or um, you know, and how companies respond over the next uh, over the next few months. I, I think it is quite fascinating, actually. And uh, you know, the, unfortunately for us uh, investment geeks, this is these are the times that we live for. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true. I mean, it's it's you always feel badly that it's it's so interesting. It's, yeah, exactly. It's, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of human suffering associated yeah. with it, but it yeah. is it, it is a intellectually it's a fast these are fascinating periods yeah. for for investors and analysts yeah no absolutely uh on that note uh jason i want to thank you very much for uh for joining our podcast and um thank you very much for insights um we are huge fans of strategists and uh, uh and all the people there and you know we've already had dan clifton on a couple of times uh, um, uh, already, and you know it's been uh, you know a great support from uh, uh, from your team, and you know please do uh, wish them and their families very well. I, I will, and and the feeling is mutual, Moses. I appreciate it. We've become good friends over a long period of time, and good friends with your whole team uh, there, and uh, you know. I don't know when they'll let us back on a plane, but I, I, I always love coming to uh, see you guys in, in London. So we'll, we'll hopefully we'll be there before, uh, before you know it. Great. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, uh, Jason, for spending the Take time care. with us today. Take care. So uh, that was Jason Trenard from Strategius. Um, and you know again very very interesting conversation a little bit longer than we had anticipated but uh, very very interesting uh, so uh, with that um, we will call it a day so thank you very much for listening to uh, Beyond the Benchmark remember you can send us questions uh, beyond at fgam.com and we look forward to speaking to you next week